pray all this in your great name, Jesus. Amen. There are lots of ways that, that you can try to categorize human beings. Some are clear-cut and others not so clear. For example, all human beings are either male or female. Everyone falls into one of those two categories. Now, other categories are a little bit less, less clear. For example, if you tried to break people up socioeconomically, you can maybe say there's three classes. Now, there's the rich, the middle class, and the poor. Then how do you define those? Where, where's the cutoff? You know, so it can, there's some, some categorizations that can get a little, little tricky. Or maybe some of you have heard the old, old saying that there are only three types of people in the world. There are those who can count, and there are those who cannot. If you don't understand, just ask, ask, the, person, ask the person next to you. Even, even better than that, I had an old friend. He told me once with a twinkle in his eye, there are only two types of people in the world. There are journey fans and liars. <laughs> now, if, if you're younger than me, if you don't know who, who Journey is, just think like 80s Backstreet Boys or BTS. That, that'll help you. But the reason I bring this up is because in today's passage, we're going to see one of the most basic ways that humanity is classified in the scriptures. And the two categories that we're given are those in Adam and those in Christ. Every human being in the world is either in Adam or they're in Christ. And the reason this is important is because if you're going to understand the salvation that's in Christ, then you must understand how all became sinners in Adam. To understand salvation in Christ, how magnificent it is and how it operates, you need to to understand how all became sinners in Adam. And to see that in our text, we're going to break our passage into two main points. We're going to look at death to all in Adam and life to all in Christ. For those of you who are taking notes, I'll give you a moment to jot that down. And I'm also going to warn you, this is a a fairly technical passage. Paul, he gives a a brilliant and beautiful argument scripturally here, but it's very involved. And so there might be a a temptation to check out at certain points. And I just encourage you, think with me, track with me, because the climax of this passage is so worth it. Okay, so for our first main point, I want you to remember that that Paul, for context here, has just explained the incredible benefits that all believers are given in Christ in the first half of chapter 5. But in verse 12, Paul seems to anticipate a natural question, which is, why or how can I be justified by faith in Christ? How how does that even work? How can one man's death, no matter how noble, defeat all the death and sin that is so obvious throughout the world? To explain that, Paul is going to focus in on Adam. And there are at least four unique things we need to understand about Adam from this text. First, Adam is the first human son of God. Verse 12 says, therefore, just ascend into the world through one man. The one man, according to, to Genesis and according to Luke chapter 3, the very first human being was Adam. And he's called the son of God. Now, that is so fitting because Adam, he had no biological mother or father. He wasn't born like each one of us has been. Instead, he was directly made by God himself in the image of God in paradise, a garden that was perfectly tailored to human flourishing. Now, on top of that, Adam and his bride Eve, they were given the privilege and task of ruling over the whole created world on God's behalf. So Adam was created to be a king. Eve was created to be a queen. They were supposed to have children and descendants who would be kings and queens, who would rule over the world 
on behalf of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so this incredible situation that Adam was given, this relationship they had with God, there was only one single prohibition. There's only one thou shalt not that God gave him. God said, you can eat out of any of the trees in the garden. Enjoy all the incredible, delicious fruit, except for the tree in the center. The tree in the center, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat out of that tree. Now this leads to our second fact, and that is that Paul wants us to know that Adam ruined everything. Adam ruined everything. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin in this way, through Adam, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. Why is there so much sin and brokenness in the world and in us? Why do 100% of human beings die? Well, the door that opened sin and death to the world was Adam. And it occurred when he believed the devil's lies in the garden. When he believed that, that God was actually holding out on him. That if he ate the, the fruit, he could become like God. He could live better, independent from God, deciding right and wrong for himself. And it was Adam's sin that caused the universe to break. Have you ever wondered why? Is it merely because all human beings follow in Adam's footsteps and imitate his sin ourselves? It's certainly true that human beings do imitate Adam's sin, but Paul's getting at something much, much deeper here. And he, he wants us to see that there's a way in which Adam's sin is unique. Adam genuinely had the capacity not to sin and not to die in the garden. He had the power not to sin. He wasn't compelled to sin. Therefore, he had the power not to die. But what Romans 5 and the rest of the Bible teaches is that his sin, it fundamentally changed humanity. To understand why, we need to unpack the third reality about Adam that Paul wants us to know, which is that he is our federal or covenant head. Now, you're not going to find that specific phrase in the text, but theologians... They often refer to Adam in this passage or other passages with a similar topic. They refer to Adam as our federal head. The word federal, it comes from the Latin word meaning covenant. And so the, the way to think about this is that Adam is humanity's representative. Adam is humanity's representative. Now, Americans, we tend to have a very personalized view of God. We think that, that he relates to us solely on an individual basis. And while it is amazing that God relates to us as individuals, that is a, a very incomplete picture of what the scriptures teach. It's actually a, a dangerous reduction. God is a covenant-making and keeping God who's always related to human beings on the basis of covenants which according to Hosea 6, that began in the garden with a covenant between God and Adam. Theologians call this the, the covenant of works or the covenant of creation. And this is important to note in Romans 5 because a covenant head, they have the power to act in such a way that it affects all those that they represent, both positively and negatively. For example, if I, John Crane... If I declare war on some random country, so let's just say Switzerland, now that would be pretty crazy and ironic, but if I declare war on Switzerland, that doesn't have any bearing on any of you. That doesn't really affect anyone else. Maybe that craziness affects my, my family. But if 
the U.S. Congress, which is our federally, federal, federally recognized body that has the authority to declare war. If, con- if Congress, if they declare war on Switzerland, then as a U.S. citizen, you are in a state of war with Switzerland. You know, other decisions that are, are made by kings or, or federal heads of government, they affect everyone in their nation. Everyone they represent, whether the citizens agree with them or not. Now, according to the logic of Romans 5.12, Adam is our, head, our federal head. He's our representative. And when he sinned, all of us as his descendants, by virtue of his position, sinned in him. This is why verse 12 says that sin and death enter the world through Adam. The rest of the passage clarifies this point. And I want you to, to just see how Paul hammers the impact of Adam's sin over and over and over again. Verse 15 says, For if by the one man's trespass, the many died. Verse 16, Because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. Verse 17, If by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verses 18 and 19 are the most explicit. 18 says, As through one trespass, there's condemnation for everyone. Do you see that? Adam's one trespass. Condemnation for everyone, for you and for me. Verse 19, for just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. It's not just that we would all become sinners. We were made sinners in Adam. The Puritans, they put it this way, Adam sinned and fell, and we all fell in Adam. Adam's sin, it plunged humanity into sin and war against God. This is why Shrine talked last week about how by default, Human beings, we are enemies of God. Now, this concept of of a federal head, as Adam being our representative, it's probably new to some of you, but one of the clearest proofs of Adam's position over humanity is the result of the very first human sin in the universe. Now, think with me here. Did Adam commit that sin? Did Adam commit the first sin? No. It was Eve, right? Eve sinned, but the the universe didn't break. It wasn't until Adam sinned that sin and death entered the world and spread to all. Why is that? Why didn't it happen with Eve? Because Adam is our federal head. He is the representative of humanity. And as we've already seen, Paul really wants us to get this through our passage. He wants us to get this point. And so he illustrates it immediately in verses 13 and 14. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. So Paul says sin was in the world before the Mosaic law was given at Sinai. And that's obvious when you study the book of Genesis. But then he says that sin is not charged where there is no law then why do those people die? Why do those people die? It sounds like he's saying God won't hold them accountable. Well, Paul, he's already answered this question in part in Romans 2 by explaining how Gentiles, without the written law, they're still going to be judged because they have the law of God written on their hearts. And their their consciences manifest that. And so in that sense, no human being is without the law. And so we should give... Paul credit here that he's not contradicting himself within just a few chapters. He's not teaching that some human beings had an excuse before God because they lived 
before Mount Sinai. Now, his whole argument in chapters 1 through 3 is that all human beings are without excuse, even those without the Mosaic law. So what Paul is saying here is that those who lived before the written law, they did not sin in the exact same way of Adam's transgression. Now, this is a little technical, but the word transgression, it's not a generic term for sin. Transgression means a a direct violation of a specific command. So so it's crossing a specific thou shall not. Adam obviously did this in the garden, but after Adam, there was not a clearly defined external revelation of God's specific will for humanity until God gave it to Israel at Mount Sinai. So in that sense, the people pre-Sinai, they did not sin in the same way as Adam. And yet, death still reigned, both spiritual death and physical death. And the reason death reigned was because of one man's sin. That's what Paul is driving at. From Adam to Moses, even when there wasn't the, the explicit law given, death still reigned. Why? It traces back to Adam's sin. Now here's what this means for us practically. And because of Adam's sin, all human beings are born with an inherited sin nature, and so we do not have the power on our own to avoid sin or avoid death. Now, I'm not saying that we're not responsible for our decisions. We're made in the image of God. No human being is as evil as they could be. And yet in Genesis 5, we see that not only are we made in God's image, not only do we deserve respect and dignity as image bearers, but we're also made in Adam's image. The the sin nature is passed down through Adam, which means that we are naturally, when we're born, bent towards sin bent away from God towards self. Now, if you have little kids or you work with little kids, you observe this all the time. You don't need to teach kids to lie. You don't need to teach kids to be selfish or to to envy. All of that is already in them. It's already there. In fact, all of the atrocities we see in the world, the most terrible of sins, the, the most terrible of sins, the seeds for them, they're in each one of our hearts. There's a capacity in in each one of us for those things. My parents, they they like to tell a story about my twin brother and I right after we learned to crawl. My mom, for snack time, she would would set my twin brother and I on opposite sides of the room with a a bowl of identical Cheerios. And we'd be excited. We'd start to chow down. But then we would notice our sibling. And inevitably, without fail, we'd begin to crawl. And we'd pass each other on the way to eating our brother's Cheerios. (laughs) Now, you might be thinking to yourself, that's pretty cute. That's pretty benign. That's not really that big of a deal. And I get that on one hand, but that tendency, that, that pull to crawl across the room, it's still in me. It's still there. Now, I step back and I look at my life. I love my life. Like, I, ha- I have an amazing wife. I couldn't have a better wife. I love my, lo- my wife. I love my kids. I love the friends God has given me. I love that I get to be a pastor. I love the work that God has given me. And yet, why, why is it, despite that, that almost every day I feel a pull towards discontentment? 
why am, I re- why am I regularly focused on the little things that I don't like about my life? Why am I so tempted to compare myself to other people? I love my, my life, but yet I compare myself. I, I still find myself envying other people and what they have. Why is that there? It's the sin nature. I don't have to cultivate that. It, it's, just, it's just there. And a helpful way to understand original sin, the effects of Adam's sin, is a picture I've shown before. It's the picture of an iceberg. Above the water, that represents the sin in your life that you're aware of. All of us have lots of sin we're already aware of in your life. But what the Bible would point us to is that the sin that is in us, the depth of the sin nature in us, it goes far, far deeper than any of us are aware of. In fact, the longer you follow Christ, the more and more you're going to see just how selfish and twisted your sin nature is, how, how unlike Christ we naturally are. Now, of course, it's possible to learn to behave more civilly and respectfully, but apart, apart from Christ, we do not have the power. We don't have, have the power to correct that selfish inward bent in ourselves, let alone others, and we certainly do not have the power to escape death. Romans 5, it explains why. We're not just sinners because we sin. We sin because we're all sinners. By birth and by choice, we are sinners. And we've inherited our sin nature and death sentence from our federal head, Adam. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking to yourself, this federal head concept, this this seems weird. Some of you are thinking, this actually seems unfair or unjust. Why should Adam represent me? <laughs> I, I want to be judged individually. And if someone is going to represent me, I, I want to say in who it is. You know, I, I want to vote. That's a, a common response, especially for, for individualistic Americans. But I want you to consider this before tuning out. Do you think you would have been a better representative for humanity than the one that God picked? Or do you think you would have chosen a better representative for yourself than God did. Adam was created sinless. You and I, we definitely were not. Adam had every advantage conceivable, and yet he still fell into sin. And my assumption is I would have too. Now, ladies, you can't just blame this on the men because Eve, we see, she didn't do any better, right? And so it would be arrogant for any of us to assume we would do better than Adam. And that brings us to a crucial point in this passage that many Christians, they have not grasped. If you reject the reality of Adam as our federal head, if you want God to just judge you solely on the basis of your individual performance, that does not help you at all to escape condemnation. What that does is it actually eliminates the possibility of salvation in Christ. So so saying, I don't want Adam to represent me. I, I want to be judged by how I have lived. That won't, that won't help you escape condemnation. It'll cut off any possibility of it, of salvation. Now, if that, if that doesn't automatically click in your mind, don't worry. Paul's going to make it more clear as we continue to work through this together. Now, this thought, it leads us to the last unique aspect of Adam we need to recognize, which is that, which is that according to verse 14, Adam is a type of Christ. That's what he explicitly says in verse 14. Now, the word type It means preliminary model. And this is where we get the theological category of typology that some of you have have studied. 
To help explain this, let me show you a picture. What is this a picture of? Be careful. It's not, a, it's not a picture of a girl, right? It's a picture of a shadow of a girl. Now, that's what typology is. It's a shadow or an outline that points to something beyond itself, greater than itself, but is not the actual substance. And God has filled up the Old Testament with types of Christ. And Adam is one of the most important of those types. His role as federal head has something unique to teach us about Christ and his work, which brings us to our second main point, life to all in Christ. Life to all in Christ. So Adam is a type of Christ. And then in verse 15, as he begins to explain how that, how that works, he says, but the gift is not like the trespass. And so he's going to start with a contrast. Verses 15 and 17, Paul shows three contrasts between Christ's work and Adam's work to show how Christ's work is different and superior to Adam's. The first contrast, contrast is the very nature of their work as explained by the rest of verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? Here's what Paul is getting at. Through Adam's one trespass, many deservingly died. Through Jesus' one gracious gift, many are undeservingly given life. The main difference that Paul highlights here is that the result of Adam's act was deserved. It was just the way that God responded. But the result of Christ's work is different. The result of Christ's work is all grace. It's all a gift. And that contrast, that's what Paul builds on in the rest of this section. Verse 16 says, and the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment resulting in condemnation. But from one, or I'm sorry, but from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. Here the focus is on the status before God that Adam and Christ's work accomplished for all that they represent. Adam's one sin, what did it lead to? Judgment and condemnation. Now, it's interesting. One sin, you look at a holy God, one, one sin, how did God respond to that? And then he says, from the many sins. So Adam sins, God judges that. Then humanity multiplies and multiplies sins. And how, how does God respond? That's well, not what I would anticipate. It says that the many sins, it prompted a gift that could take sinners and give them a perfectly righteous standing before God. Jesus' gracious gift, it leads to justification, which Paul has been describing throughout chapters 3 and four, and he, he elaborates that more in verse 17. He says, If by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Adam's one trespass, and it led to the reign of death over all of humanity. This is a tragic reversal because humanity, remember, we were made to rule with God. And because of Adam's sin, now sin and death actually rule over us. But look at what, what Jesus' gracious gift leads to. It, it leads to the reigning in life 
for all those who receive it. Now, who is, what is the it, I should say? What's the, the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness? The gift of, of righteousness. Now, this is one of those verses that God used to change my life. I, I vividly remember where, where I was when I read this. I was in the backyard at my parents' house. It was a summer, summer morning. They have a flower garden. I was sitting on a bench there. And with some of the things I was wrestling with and thinking through, I was thinking about how, how can you have confidence before God in your salvation? Now, God is holy. God demands this righteousness that, that none of us can attain to. And, and it seems so obvious. I'm sure I've read it many times before, but it just, it just clicked. Verse 17, the gift of righteousness. You can never achieve righteousness before God. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you work, you can never achieve righteousness. You have to receive it. You have to receive it as a gift. You need a righteousness that is not your own, that is given to you. And this verse is really important because some people, they twist this passage. They say that Paul is teaching here universalism. Because Adam's sin affected all humanity, then because Jesus died on the cross, everyone gets to go into heaven. And what the scriptures teach is that salvation is available to everyone, but not everyone receives it. Not everyone receives the gift of righteousness. Now, notice that it doesn't say Christ will reign in life, even though that's true. The emphasis in verse 17 is something more wild. It's that through Christ's gracious gift, his people, those who receive him, the people who receive Christ, they will reign in life. If you're a Christian, you will reign in life with Christ. Now, this isn't just pointing ahead to the new heavens and the new earth and the age to come. Chapter 6 is going to explain that we begin to reign with Christ now over the power of sin and death in the newness of life that comes from our union with Christ. So after making these three amazing contrasts, Paul, he's ready for us to see the primary similarity between Adam's work and Christ's work in verses 18 through 19. So then... As through one trespass, there's condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there's justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Here we see the biggest way that Adam foreshadows Christ. Adam's one sin made all of humanity, which he represented, guilty sinners. But Jesus' one righteous act, it makes all those that he represents justified, righteous, and reconciled before God. In other words, Jesus is the federal head of a new humanity. He's the new perfect representative of all who are born again through faith in him. This is why 1 Corinthians calls Jesus the last Adam. While Adam was the the first human son of God, Jesus is the eternal son of God to, to, to become human. The eternal son of God, he became human to triumph where Adam was beaten. Now the virgin birth, it's non-negotiable in this because for Jesus to be fully human yet without sin, he could not inherit the sin nature passed down through Adam. But that's no problem for Jesus because he had no human father. He was the son of Mary and he was the son of God. Just as Adam was uniquely created by God as the original head of humanity, Jesus' human nature was uniquely created by God in the womb of Mary. And that marked him as the head of a new humanity. Now, before Jesus could save anyone, 
He had to first succeed where Adam failed. There are so many ways that Adam's failure in the garden foreshadows Christ's far greater victory at the cross. And we've looked at many of those in the past. But I want to just share with you one of my favorites this morning. Adam's one trespass, one of the ways you, th- way you can think about this, is that it happened in paradise. His failure happened in paradise. The weather was great. His health, it was perfect. And he was with his beautiful wife. They were naked and unashamed. They had nothing to be scared of, nothing to hide, nothing to be anxious about. And again, only one single prohibition. You could sum it up as simply as this. Obey me about the tree and live. That was Adam's test. Obey me about the tree and live. And it was clearly intended for Adam's good. It was intended to protect him. Now, instead of obeying God, who had been so generous to him, Adam reached out to eat the forbidden fruit. And he did that trying to grasp equality with God, to make himself his own God. Now, compare that to Christ. Christ Jesus is actually God. But Jesus, we're told in Philippians 2, he did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage, but he humbled himself to take on human flesh. Throughout his entire life, he was perfectly obedient to the Father, but but Paul stresses in verses 18 through 19 his one righteous act, his one righteous act of obedience. And that's to remind us of Jesus' most severe test and the one that ultimately won our victory. That test, it can be summed up like this. Obey me about the tree and die. Obey me, son, about the tree and die. The command that God gave Jesus, it was not for his protection. It was for his glorification and for our salvation. (laughs) See, Adam, he was warned. If he ate the fruit of the tree, he would die. But Jesus, he was commanded to taste the fruit of death so that he could give life and salvation to God's enemies, to you and to me. Now, Jesus' one act of righteousness, it obviously did not take place in paradise, did it? It was in the most hellish circumstances possible on earth. No, Jesus, he was betrayed by Judas. He was abandoned by his inner circle of followers. He was falsely condemned. He was flogged, tortured, spit on. He was punched in the face repeatedly. And then he was, then he was led to the, to the hill, led to the cross. And Jesus is God. Anytime, anytime, he could just stop it. Anytime, he could just end it. And it was in these horrific circumstances that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. On the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on Christ. He was separated even from the love of his father. He suffered more than we can fathom. And on the cross, Jesus passed the test. On the cross, Jesus, the last Adam, he succeeded where the first Adam had failed. And when Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. Instead, three days later, he rose from the dead. And his resurrection, it proved his victory over both sin and death. And it established him as the federal head of a new community. Christ is the covenant head for believers. And this is why we should not resist the reality that God deals with humans through covenants and through covenant heads. Because even though Adam's work, and Adam, we inherited sin and death, through Christ's work, we can be given the free gift of righteousness and eternal life. 
something even far better than, than Adam enjoyed. While we did not choose to be born in Adam with a rebellious sin nature, the gospel offers all human beings the opportunity to be born again through faith in Christ. And so in that sense, you really can choose who will be your covenant head. Is it going to be Adam? Or is it going to be Christ? Now, sadly, most people would rather function as God of their own life than Adam did, than repent and submit to Christ as their Savior and their Lord. What about you? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Now, for the kids who are here, you're not, you're not a Christian. You're not in Christ just because you've grown up going to church. If you've been baptized before, that, that doesn't mean you're in Christ. Just because you try to obey some of the commands of Scripture, that doesn't mean you're in Christ. The only way to be in Christ is to humble yourself and agree with what Scripture teaches, that we are so sinful, that our sin runs so deep that it is impossible for us to save ourselves, no matter how hard we try. And when you acknowledge that, when you see that, you're in a position, your soul is in a position to turn to Christ and trust Him, to repent and trust Christ and His work to save you. All people either stand condemned in their sin, condemned in Adam, or they turn and they trust Christ's work. And if you do, you'll taste the sweetness of God's grace. To highlight that grace, we need to loop in Romans 5, verses 20 through 21. This is the the climax of the passage. It says, The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Many Jews, they thought that the law's purpose was to restrain sin. It was to make Israel righteous before God. And Paul's point here that he's going to develop later is that the law and human effort, it can never free us from sin and death. In fact, knowledge of the law only increases the seriousness of our sin and multiplies the sin of fallen humanity in Adam. Now that's not very good news. (laughs) But listen to this. Where sin multiplied, what happened? Where human sin multiplied, how did God respond? My my assumption would be sin multiplies, God puts an end to it. God, God finally, he brings wrath. He pours out a multiplied amount of wrath. But if you want to see the heart of God towards sinful human beings, don't miss this. Where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Where sin abounded, where sin increased, grace increased even more. Paul's whole in-depth look at original sin and the federal headship of Adam, it was all to set us up so that we could see the overflowing grace of Christ. The, the word overflowing here, it literally means super abounding. It's two words put together. It's one of the strongest words possible in the Greek to emphasize how powerful and how expansive God's grace is. And I, I want us to just think about this for a few minutes. Where human sin multiplied, God multiplied his grace far more. It overflowed. There's a super abundance of it. Remember the illustration a few weeks ago about grace? That grace, if you're a Christian, it's like this refreshing waterfall that's constantly pouring over you, constantly rushing over you. The idea of super abundance is that it is excessive and then some. It's far more than you ever need, and then multiply that by a million. That's the grace of God that's towards you. 
And what this means for us is that there is no human sin so great that God's grace is not greater in Christ. No human sin is so great that God's grace can't conquer it in Christ. Are you worried that you've fallen too deep or too many times into pornography or anxiety or bitterness or apathy or addiction? See, some people, they're haunted by big sins that they have committed. Can God really forgive that? Other people, I'd say most people, what, what, we're, what we are haunted by is how consistently we sin, how we sin so often in the same dumb ways over and over again. And what Paul says is where sin increased, grace increased all the more. I was thinking about this verse yesterday. I was at one of my son's basketball games, and one of my other sons, he wanted a, a fruit snack during the game. And it was out in the van, so we told him, hey, you need to, you need to wait. You can have one after the game. And he didn't really like that, so he kept whining, kept complaining. Eventually, we just had to say, sorry, buddy, no fruit snack. You're having a bad attitude. Now, he did not respond very well to that. So that, that went from whining to now we're in like a full-on meltdown in public. Temper tantrum, he's like losing his mind. And so it was so bad, I actually had to like just take him outside. It was so distracting. So I just t- took him, went out to the van, and uh, the few times that's happened in the past, normally he kind of de-escalates pretty quickly when I just kind of get him alone. He did not de-escalate. You know, he just kept getting more and more and more frustrated. And at first I was actually, I was thinking about this passage, but it kept going on and it kept going on. And eventually I looked at him really intently. I said, stop crying. You're not going to get what you want. Now, it's not wrong always for parents to be firm with their kids. There's times where that's perfectly appropriate. But as I said that, immediately in my spirit, I knew, I did not say that because I love my son. I said that because I am selfishly exasperated. My patience, it's reached its limit. And sadly for me, embarrassingly for me, it, it was not very much. It wasn't very much. And so in that moment, my grace ran out. Now, I, I quickly told him, Rye, your attitude is wrong. My attitude there was just wrong. That's not how Jesus deals with me. Will you forgive me? I had, to, I had to right away, I had to right away clear that with him, apologize to him. But I bring that up because I think that's, that's what we're afraid will happen with us and God. There's gotta be a point. There, there has gotta be a point where his patience runs out with me. There's got to be a point where there's no more grace for him to give. And what Paul wants us to see is where sin increased, grace increased all the more. If you've trusted in Christ, God's grace, it has no limit. It's infinite. It has no capacity. Even if you lived a million years and sinned millions and millions of times every minute, you still couldn't out-sin God's grace. You still can outsend God's grace if your trust is in Christ. Now, I know some will immediately think, if you teach that, you're promoting sin. You're going to promote sin. And guess what? That's what, people call, that's what people accused Paul of when he preached the gospel. And he's going to deal with it. He's going to deal with that misconception next week, actually. And so if you're wondering, okay, are you saying you, it's good to, are you saying you just go on and sin? No. But Paul is also going to show us in chapter 6 that that argument is completely backwards. It's the opposite. It's only those people who love and embrace and depend on the grace of Christ. They're the only ones who are going to experience growing victory over sin and reign with Christ in this life and for eternity. It's only those who embrace God's grace. 
And so a question for you to consider, believers, the question for you is, are you convinced that you can never out God's grace? Deep in your soul, do you believe that you cannot out God's grace? You see, you need that conviction if you're going to walk closely with Christ for the rest of your life. Remember the iceberg? The longer you walk with Christ, the more you're going to see your sin. And if you don't understand God's grace, you're going to live consistently discouraged, consistently defeated. But if you understand God's grace, you recognize he has forgiven it. And not only has he forgiven it, his heart towards me doesn't change. He wants to bless me. He wants to pour out more grace in my life. Not just forgiveness, but empowering grace. Grace to walk with him, to have victory over that sin. You have to you have to have this conviction about God's grace if you're going to be involved in gospel ministry, if you're going to be patient with other people. Loving other people is hard. It's hard for you. It's hard dealing with people. You have to have the conviction that God's grace, it really can change people. And then you understand how God has been gracious to you. You can be gracious with others, even when they don't change. And so just to to close here, the practical application, if you're a believer, expect God's grace to triumph in your life. Expect God's grace to triumph in your life. Christ gives us forgiving grace, empowering grace. And as wonderful as that is, in verse 21, we see the climax that, that Christ, he gives us eternal grace. He gives us eternal grace. This is what theologian Thomas Schreiner calls the triumph of grace, that sinners lost in Adam and ruled by death, we can in Christ begin to reign with him now and reign forever by his grace. Grace is our future as believers. And grace, it's going to reign forever in Christ because the grace of Christ, it does, it does more than merely restore what Adam lost. It's not just that in Christ we get, we get back to even with Adam. See, Adam knew God personally as his creator, but, but Adam was in a position both to sin and die and to lose it all. That isn't true for us as believers. We don't just know God as our creator, but we know him as our savior as our gracious covenant head. And in Christ, not only is it impossible for us to out his grace, we also don't have to fear death because it's only going to take us directly into Christ's presence where there'll be no more pull to sin, no, no desire to sin, and no death forevermore. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the the overflowing grace, the super abundant grace that you brought and that you won and that you've given to us. God, I, I pray if there's anyone here who, who doesn't see their need for you, who, who is not in you, trusting in you, I pray even now you draw them. And for the rest of us, Lord, I, I pray you'd help us to, to understand how, how the security of your love, it is tied to our understanding of your grace. It's tied to our understanding that, that when we stand before you, we will be judged based on what you have accomplished, Jesus. We're, we're going to be, we are given what the blessings that you have earned. Thank you, Jesus, that, that you won. Thank you that you represent us. And I pray that that would give us such confidence, Lord, to, to go out into life. They give us such confidence, Lord, not just of your love, but of your, of your power, God, to, to begin to change us and to help us, little by little, begin to love others more like you. And so, once again, God, we just trust you to, to use these truths, to use your, 
your word in each one of our hearts. Amen. We're going to